0: It never really even crossed my mind the possibility of, of becoming a scientist. I didn't really have a proper exposure to biology specifically until I reached college. And that's when I was like, wow, this is amazing.
1: Welcome to season three of Biogenesis, where we get to know a biologist, where they came from, and where they're going next. I'm Raleigh McElvery from the MIT Department of Biology.
2: And I'm Connor Guerin from Whitehead Institute.
1: This season, we'll introduce you to three graduate students who are breaking the mold.
2: Over the course of their research training, these biologists have shattered the preconceived notions they grew up with about what scientists look like and where scientists come from.
1: Today, you'll meet Yamilex Acevedo-Sanchez.
2: Her first exposure to science was through TV. But she's since learned that the media often showcases a narrow swath of the faces behind the discoveries.
1: Now a scientist herself, she's seen firsthand the diversity of disciplines and brain power that fuels the research community. Her own research project explores how deleterious pathogens sneak from one cell to the next, spurring infection.
0: My name is Yamilex Acevedo Sanchez, but I go by Yami because it's easier to pronounce. I am a third year graduate student in the biology department and I'm in the Laminson lab. So I was born in Philly. Both my mom and my dad met in Philly. They met while they were dancing and I think that's why I love dancing so much. And they had me and then when I was three years old, they moved back to Puerto Rico. My formation was heavily influenced by, by Puerto Rico because my, my parents aren't fluent in English um, and like they're Puerto Rican. So everything that was done in the household was definitely influenced by Puerto Rican culture. My dad didn't finish high school. He actually uh, dropped out when he was in eighth grade. At the time, my mom only had her high school diploma, but like both of them always encouraged me to pursue higher education just because that was something that they they didn't really have at the time. And later on, when I was, I think, like 12 or 13, my mom finished her bachelor's in education. So she she's a teacher now. I always got really good grades because, like, my mom was very strict with that. Like, I could not go with a bad grade to my house. She really doesn't understand what I do, but um, she's always uh, encouraged me to to pursue my dreams.
1: Academically... Yami's childhood was a flurry of reading, math, and science competitions. Above all, though, she enjoyed astronomy.
0: Something I would always love to do, which is something I can't do here, was, is sit outside at night with my dad and watch the stars. I remember a black chalkboard, and I would always teach the same lesson on astronomy to my toys. Um, Because I had, like, an encyclopedia, a uh, Mickey Mouse encyclopedia. i would always watch documentaries on the History Channel about space. And then my dad loves animals um, because he grew up, like, in a farm, basically. And so we would always watch Animal Planet and just, I don't know, see the people narrating how the animals behaved and all these things.
2: The scientists in these TV shows were the first researchers Yami encountered,
0: My idea of a scientist was male, white, old. A very uh, common stereotype, I think. I'm a woman, first and foremost. I'm brown. I'm not old yet. And so it never really even crossed my mind, the possibility of, of becoming a scientist. Going to college was just a big achievement in itself. I didn't even... Think much about what I wanted to be. I just needed to pick an institution. And that was really hard because, in addition to not having people in my family or like friends um, or friends of friends that were scientists, I really didn't know much about what was a school that could provide me with the tools I needed to be successful.
1: Luckily, Yami's high school counselor. Peña, Luz Peña, pointed Yami towards her own alma mater, the University of Puerto Rico in Mayaguez. So I was between really two schools, and,
0: and Peña helped me narrow it down to Mayaguez.
2: But picking a college and getting accepted was just the first hurdle.
0: I didn't have any, any savings. Because um, I was a student, I didn't work. I was fully focused in college. And my, my parents really lived, still live, bill-to-bill so they didn't have any savings for me to go to college luckily because i i I had good grades the town where i i went to high school they give money to students but i remember that first semester was really really rough because like the financial aid wasn't enough and i didn't even have enough money for my last rent payment of the year and what saved me was that I have an uncle who's who's better off economically than me and my family. And without even me asking, he he gave me money, and it was enough for to pay the rent. So yeah, it was really rough, but I've I've always had people who have have helped me.
2: Yami began at UPR in 2013, intending to become a cardiologist.
0: I was interested in. Becoming a physician, because my dad had heart problems, and that changed, I think, like, six months in, I was definitely sure that that was not something I wanted to do.
1: Her interest in fundamental biology started where most things do, at the level of DNA.
0: Yeah, it was intro to biology, which sounds very simple, but to me, it was everything Before going to college, I I knew DNA was a thing. I knew DNA was what determined who you were and what distinguished us from everyone and and every living thing. But
1: I really didn't understand what that meant. She quickly switched from the pre-med track to a major in industrial microbiology. But then it was a
0: thing of like, okay, you don't want to be a physician, which has always been the plan. How are you going to tell your family? And what are you gonna do? And that's when my my professor, my intro bio professor, another one of my mentors who's helped me a lot um, more than I think she she knows, uh, Dr. Navas, she would always talk to freshmen about internships and different research going on in in UPR from different professors, and she would always encourage us to seek out those opportunities. At the end of my first year, I applied to one internship, didn't get in. And then my second year, I actually reached out to a bunch of professors and was turned down by one. And he was he was very mean about it, I remember. Uh, and one thing he said was, you know, like, my students end up in, like, top-tier institutions. And I need to make sure that if I get a student in my lab, like, they'll end up in a top-tier institution. So you can come back like the next year and we can talk about you being in my lab. Of course, I I never came back. Um, But now I think, well, I'm at MIT now. So Um, but anyways. uh, So, yeah, so I, I reached out to a bunch of professors and I didn't get an opportunity, but I applied to an internship and I got the internship at Northeastern University. And that was definitely crucial Because after that, when I came back to Puerto Rico, I started working in in the lab of Dr. Martinez Cruzado, and I was able to join the MARC program, which stands for um, Maximizing Access and Research Careers for Minority Students. And that's basically an NIH-funded program that pays students to do research and to take specific advanced classes.
2: As Yami's portfolio of research experiences began to grow, the image of the scientists she grew up watching on her TV screen were replaced with new faces.
0: When I started doing summer internships, that I, I I saw that I was capable of getting into said programs and performing experiments that helped me evolve my view. So I think that, yeah, definitely the summer internships and seeing the, the diversity in the interns definitely helped. I think that in a way helped me break that that idea that only you know a specific group could be a scientist that goes to a point that I I always like to make which is like the importance of having these programs Um, just allowing students to see that if they want to become a scientist they can and that it's it's something that's achievable by anyone and it's not something that is influenced solely by how you look or or who you are i will say though you know some groups definitely have a harder time getting into science than others and that is something that can't be debated um so in a way who you are does influence but it shouldn't deter you from going into science you know i i don't know who said this to me but that's something i say to my friends don't say no to yourself let others say no to you you know don't limit yourself
1: One particularly formative experience was the Quantitative Methods Workshop, a week-long boot camp offered by the MIT Department of Biology.
0: This is my second time in Massachusetts, my first time in Cambridge. And it was a very intense week, I remember.
1: The following summer, Yami returned to Cambridge, Mass., this time for eight weeks as part of MIT's Summer Research Program in Biology, a.k.a. MSRP Bio.
2: She was placed in Alan Grossman's lab studying DNA replication and horizontal gene transfer in the bacterium Bacillus Cetylus.
0: After MSRP, it was very clear that I was going to go to graduate school. And at the end of the day, it was just very logical to come to MIT. I already knew everyone, and I knew the department, and I knew the ins and outs. So MIT was my last interview, and I knew, I knew. Like, I knew. As soon as I I was here, I was like, this is, if they take me, this is it. I'm not even going to think twice.
2: When Yami arrived on campus in the fall of 2018 as a grad student, she had a concrete plan and a specific list of labs she wanted to work in. But that changed when she started taking her required classes.
0: When I started graduate school, I thought I was interested in gene expression and gene regulation and all these types of genetic questions. And after my taking some of the core courses, I realized I was more interested in biochemistry than in, in genetics. And that changed
1: my plan entirely. By the time the annual faculty poster sessions rolled around in January, Yami was a free agent, prepared to hear what each faculty member had to say about their lab and their research. The approach I took
0: was just, okay, you're going to listen to different talks, and you're going to see what sparks your interest. If someone starts talking and you come up with multiple questions, then you should talk to that person. And when Becky gave her talk, I remember that that happened.
2: Assistant Professor Becky Lamison had recently opened her lab, aiming to explore how bacterial pathogens hijack molecular machinery in host cells to spread.
0: And I, I wanted to be in a lab where everything that was discovered was was game changing. And I think Becky's lab definitely had that and has that still. And in addition to that, I really liked the the concept of you know we, we study host pathogen interactions, and for that you really need to know microbiology, but also cell biology. Um, and I like that I didn't have to pick between uh, either field. I could be in a lab that is constantly thinking about the bacteria, but also about the cell. We specifically study Listeria monocytogenes and Rickettsia parkeri. And I focus on Listeria monocytogenes, which is this uh, human pathogen that causes Listeriosis.
1: The disease mostly affects immunocompromised individuals and newborns. Precisely how Listeria spreads from one host cell to another remains a mystery, but the Lamison Lab suspects the process goes something like this.
2: The pathogen enters the host cell and commandeers the host's machinery to assemble a tail of proteins and rocket around, ramming into the cell membrane.
1: That force creates a protrusion poking through to the membrane of the neighboring cell. Somehow, the cell engulfs the protrusion into a membrane-bound bubble encircling the pathogen.
2: Once it's safely inside the new cell, Listeria escapes out of its bubble and the infectious cycle continues.
1: As a postdoc at UC Berkeley, Becky conducted a type of genetic screen, known as an RNAi screen, that helped curate a list of potential proteins that could be involved in cell-to-cell spread.
2: On that list were two types of proteins,
1: caviolins and paxin-2,
2: which healthy cells use to transfer material into the cell through a process called endocytosis.
1: This could signify that Listeria is co-opting the host's endocytosis machinery to spur its own spread. We knew
0: at the time that these proteins were positive regulators of spread, so the bug needs these proteins to move from one cell to another. But we really didn't know how. And at this point, we don't know how. I decided to pick that product because I I wanted to figure out the molecular, mechanistic type of process that was happening for, for this regulation to happen. And we know that caviolins impacts into interact and in their native environment, they form a, a membrane stru- structure called a caviole that's important for tension, buffering, and also for trafficking. So we know that they have some sort of involvement, but the types of questions I'm addressing right now are, does Listeria need this interaction to happen for subtle cell spread to happen? Uh, And how exactly is it that these proteins are facilitating subtle cell spread in Listeria? But as of now, I'm just introducing a CRISPR system to the Lamacin lab. Before that, all the work we had done was RNAi-based.
1: Both RNAi and CRISPR-Cas9 are gene silencing tools. RNAi targets the mRNA to prevent protein expression, but CRISPR acts on the DNA to edit the sequence and permanently silence the gene's expression.
2: RNAi is also an older technique that has more off-target effects than CRISPR. At the moment, Yami is working to make the cell lines she needs to create a CRISPR system to study the role CAVIOLINS and Paxin-2 play in Listeria's spread.
0: Yeah, making the cell lines, validating them just to make sure that they're behaving as the RNAi-based work uh, suggests that they should be behaving. And then just addressing some of the the key questions I need to address to launch later pilot experiments. And so now it's a lot of just building and cloning, making cell lines and cloning a bunch of mutants. So a lot of time in the tissue culture room, for sure.
1: But Yami also makes space in her schedule to share some of the lessons she's learned with others in the community. I try and split my time between
0: just like doing lab stuff and then like doing other things outside of lab. So I've, I've tried to be involved in, in kind of like these like diversity outreach types of uh, activities for the department.
2: Her outreach activities include working with MIT Biology and the Office of Graduate Education to recruit students, serving as a biopal and mentor to younger biograds, organizing events for the student-led biology diversity community, and speaking to younger students back home.
0: Every time I get a chance, I try to talk to students in, in Puerto Rico uh, in high school about like science and just show my face and be like, you can be a scientist too. I always think about that and just how much I've learned in, I don't know what, like five or four years. It just amazes me. You're not in graduate school because you know everything. If so, you wouldn't be here. You're here because you can learn and you've showed that you can learn. And I, I think that over the years I've I've been able to see that, you know. And I think that's true for everyone in graduate school and in life. Like if you don't know something, you can learn it. Resources are, are definitely not evenly distributed. But if you look hard enough, I'm pretty sure you you will look for for the appropriate resources. And you know, I'm here. Like I'm definitely a resource that 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 people can can utilize. To people that are in science, just keep in mind how important it is to reach out to, to these communities that don't necessarily have these resources available, um, because, you know, we don't, we don't know if, if the next big discovery lies in the hands of someone who is in this neighborhood that does not have these resources available because of their upbringing.
2: Well, that's all for today. Next time, tune in to hear about a student who is bringing deep learning techniques to bear on the mysteries of microRNAs, which are short RNA sequences that are essential to regulating gene expression.
1: Subscribe to the podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes, or find us on our websites at MIT Biology and Whitehead Institute.
2: Thanks for listening.